Well, I think yeah, that's the it's part of the hostile environment. You know, it's part of the hostile environment. So, for example, one other thing the government has decided to do in 2017 is that if you are a, a refugee in this country, mm-hmm. refugee usually, you know, refugee means, you know, you have international protection. Yeah. But when the time comes for you after five years, mm-hmm. if you want to renew your leave to remain, uh, you know, to, to get you indefinitely to remain, what the UK government then do is that they, they do a safe country review. So basically what they do, they look at your country where you're coming from, is the situation has changed. So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast series. You're joining us today on International Human Rights Day, which we're commemorating together with the Coventry City of Culture. So the International Human Rights Day commemorates the day on which, in 1948, the United Nations General Assembly adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Its theme this year is Recover Better, Stand Up for Human Rights. We're joined today by a human rights champion and founder and director of Migrants at Work, Aki Achi. Aki, welcome. Hi, right, thanks, uh, Nathan, for having me today. Um, it's It's been an incredible journey that that you've had in your life. You left the Ivory Coast when you were young and migrated to France. Talk to us about those, those early years and what that was like. Um... Um, yeah, I, I left the Ivory Coast when I was 10 years old. Um, so what I was doing in Ivory Coast at the age of 10 years old, um, from the perspective of a European um, citizen, they would be calling me uh, a child laborer. But I was simply working with my family in our cocoa plantation, you know, uh, okay. pineapple plantation. So yeah. that's what we do to survive in our country you know you don't have a choice so they call us child labor but for us it's just survival so i arrived right. in france at the age of 10 years old with my big sister she was 12 years old um okay. and also we spent quite some time um in france so you know i've been in europe for 35 years now right so yeah so what were the early years in in the ivory coast like you you say that you would be referred to here as a as a child laborer. Did you did you have access to education? Um, yeah, well, yeah, I had access to education, but you know, when I was little, you know, it's either I didn't like to go to school because going to school means that my mom and my big brothers and sisters and father had mm-hmm. to go to the plantation. And I did not want to go to school and I wanted to go with them because mm-hmm. that's how it works. You know, if you go, you bring food home and the food you bring home, that's what you're going to eat. You know, so that's that's how that's how life is. So I chose to go with them simply because we were together in a family, you know. But if you go to school and you come out of the school, mm-hmm. where are you going to go to? Because... You know, every time when you're at civil war, any my country have two civil war, everything, you know, they'll always destroy everything. 
you yeah. have no job opportunity or anything. Even now, I had nephews mm. who have degrees in in my village mm. and are working in a plantation. So, where's the point? So, there just there just isn't the opportunity there that that's perhaps here in Europe. No, there isn't. There isn't. You know, there are opportunity for some people, but not for everyone. You know, why why do you think that is? In Ivory Coast, why why do you think the situation hasn't changed? Well, the situation could change if Europeans were leaving us alone, you know. Because mm. when you have trade agreement between European countries and African countries, mm. those trade agreement have no benefit for African country. Can you imagine that? Uh, my family, for example, they are producer of a cocoa, right? But I've never eaten chocolate before I get to Europe, right? And when you go to the supermarket here. You don't see any chocolate made in Africa. You see clothes made in China that get here, but you don't see any any bar of chocolate made in Africa. So right. all those trade agreements put a lot of barriers for African, you know, businesses to export the product to Europe. But you have a lot of a uh, product from Europe being uh, exported to to Africa. Yeah, so, so do, you, do, you, do you think, given it's it's International Human Rights Day, there's a disproportionate interference with the human rights of people in your in your home country? Of course, they don't care. What matters to them is their own human right. They don't care about human right of African people. You know? Do you realize that you have to African country have to import bananas, apple from Europe? Are you kidding me? We have a lot of uh, land and we have to export, to import from Europe. You got to be kidding me. So this is all set out and I guess they would argue that the trade agreements are, they're voluntary. <laughs> of course, that, yeah. That, 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 <laughs> that nobody is mandated to sign it. If you don't want to sign it, don't. Well, if you cannot export your product to Europe, where, where, where are you going to export it to? Mm. When they put a barrier everywhere, and it's like putting a chain on your leg and telling you you are free because you can wave your hand, but they don't look at your legs. Yeah, you know. I mean, that's that's very difficult. So let's let's talk about um, growing up in in France. Mm. That that change of environment coming from the Ivory Coast and arriving in France. What what was your what were those early years like? Really cold. <laughs> <laughs> really cold yeah. and it was really a transformation really because you arrive in a country where you know you see people you have never seen before mm. you know the first time i got here everything i saw was white i saw white people yeah. i saw snow white yeah. i came here in december so everything was white you yeah. know i never seen that before but yeah. it was just it was not my, it was not my choice to come to europe my parents just sent me to europe you know, mm-hmm. uh, as I said, I always say, you know, they, I was like Superman. They sent me to Europe, you know, but when I got to Europe, I did not have any yellow sun or superpower. You know, yeah. you get into this situation where, you know, you arrive in a new country, mm-hmm. you know, fortunately for me, because Africa it was a, a French speaking country. So I was able to, uh, I could understand the language. But when yeah. you arrive into a country where you don't understand the language, it's not always easy but, you know, you have to. You don't have a choice. So you have to. And what, what sort of community did you did you arrive into? Was there a settled 
like diaspora that yeah. was there which you could just go into and sort of like seamlessly um well because i was little for me it was um a lot of easier because in the area where i was it was a uh, you know have a lot of a uh, african you know living in that area so it was mm -hmm. just you know it was just africa part two you know you just you, know, you yeah. just find yourself you know in the environment but as you grow up you know you go to school and you meet you know uh, over children and just you know live your life really right. so you it, it sounds to me like you didn't really find that that difficult but the journeys of well, a lot of different types of people who migrate are very very different mm. some people have really stark outcomes yeah. so for example in the United Kingdom, mm. if you come here and you claim asylum and yeah. that asylum claim fails, yeah. there is this thing called the hostile environment, which yeah. just eats you up. And you can experience homelessness. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have access to work. Yeah. Sometimes the UK government can't even remove you back to your own country. Mm -hmm. And you're just stuck here. So you you never experienced any of those things in France? No, I never experienced. Well, when I was little, I did not experience that. But it was a a time I think I was I don't know around when I was twenty or twenty one or something like that. And so I used to have a, a limited leave to remain. So okay. every five years. Um, I have to renew my, my leave. Okay. And there was a period where the law has changed. Right. So I fell into um, uh, I, I, I fell into a gap. Mm -hmm. So during that period, I have a choice. Either um, I find a, a university or college or something mm -hmm. to enroll mm -hmm. so that I can renew my, my uh, leave in a country. Okay. Or if... Um, they caught me on the street, then they, I could have potentially be deported because of this gap in the law at the time. Right. So I managed to resolve the situation. So what that was my early uh, experience of mm. the hostile environment in France because right. the hostile environment exists in France when you are African living in, in, in France, it exists as well. It's just a different name. You right. know? But compared to many of my brothers and sisters in the UK who are experiencing a hostile environment, mm. I can't complain. I was, uh, I would say, a VIP. You know? right. The way I came to Europe and mm. the way I live my life, mm. I, I would say was, and I was a VIP. My little experience is nothing compared to what many, many of my brothers and sisters are going through in Europe here. You know? Right, okay. Um, so the journey from living in France and mm. then being attracted with a move to come mm. to the UK. Talk to us about why Why did you decide to do that? And what particularly attracted you to coming to, to the UK? Um, I think I came to the UK simply because I just wanted to, to flee France, really. You know, because of racism in France, I just had enough because it was really difficult for a black person to find a job, even mm. though I spent years and years you know two decades in france mm -hmm. your skin color still still gonna be a problem it does not matter what kind of this um, qualification you have wherever you speak the language i even speak french better than my mother tongue but it didn't matter because once you get to those jobs you know they will tell you i remember one day they told me well 
I said to him, I'm French. They say, yes, you're French, but you're French on paper, you know? So that says a lot, you know? Really? Yeah. They, they actually come out and say that to you? Yeah. They said that straight to me. And I went, I wanted at the time I went to renew my leave to remain. Uh, I was to change my leave to, to remain to my French citizenship. Mm-hmm. That's where when they gave me my document, I said, yay, I'm French. They said, yes, you're French on paper. So he tells you everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you know? that's that's terrible. Yeah, I and mean, there's there's no other way of of putting that. So it's it's difficult. Do you think that it's difficult for people who migrate to France to to have to feel included or to have some inclusion or to actually experience citizenship in the ordinary way that any other French person would would experience uh, it? No, I don't think so. Well, my experience as a French citizen is really, really different from, I don't know, a, a, a white French citizen, I would say. Um, even though I have, as I said to me, even though I'm French on paper, mm-hmm. I don't feel French simply because of the way I've been treated. I don't feel French at all. Even the is similar, the same thing in the UK. I've been living in this country for over 15 years now. Mm-hmm. But even though I'm an EU citizen, I don't feel like I'm an EU citizen. I feel more, I'm a, uh, you know, uh, I'm an African in Europe yeah. rather than an EU citizen in Europe because of the way I've been treated. As I always say, in UK, they see my skin color before they see my passport, mm. you know. So that's how they see me, mm-hmm. you know. If I was a white EU citizen, that would be different. Yeah. You know. Right, okay. So you you come to the UK and you founded and you're the director of Migrants at Work. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about that journey, about the conception of, of forming Migrants at Work. Why why did you feel the need to, to establish this organization? Well, first, I think it's come from a very personal experience because... Uh, back in 2009, the new immigration law uh, came into force. It was the Immigration Act 2006 that came into force. And mm-hmm. this has increased employer responsibility for the immigration status of the employees. So okay. at the time, my employer was asking me to provide. So even though I was working for the employer already, but mm-hmm. when the new legislation came in, my employer asked me to provide a copy of my uh, right to work permit. Mm-hmm. So I was explaining to my employer that I did not need one because I'm a French citizen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had a French national ID card at the time. So my employer did not recognize a French national ID card. So uh, so we had an email going back and forth, a discussion going back and forth, an argument going back and forth until my employer decided that, well, I made a decision that if I do not provide um, my passport, then they will potentially terminate my contract of employment. Then I had to rush to the home office and to the French embassy to tell them this, to explain the situation. They said to me, yeah, you have the right to work. It shouldn't be a problem. But it actually, actually, there was a problem. So after I obtained my passport, which I did not need, mm. then you know, my employer you know, became a little bit more comfortable. Then at the time I was a member of the trade union, the union did not help me at all because they don't have a clue about the situation around, you know, the issue around the right to work and what migrants are going through. And then right. when, I, when a few years later, I started to work for them and mm-hmm. I realized that many migrants were going through the similar issue and the union wouldn't help with them at all. 
So I try to campaign within the trade union movement for them to take on this issue seriously. But unions are not interested. They just want uh, the migrants' money rather than you know dealing with issue migrants are facing. Then I left the union after five years because I mm-hmm. said, well, this is not for me. The way unions are treating migrants and black people, this mm-hmm. is not a union for me because all the top management within the trade union, they're all white. They don't really care about what the issue we are going through. Mm-hmm. You know? So then I left and I decided to stay on migrant and work because there was a gap and nobody else is doing it. Then yeah. somebody has to do it. You know? yeah. So that's how migrant work you know, came to life, really. Um, it sounds ex- extremely difficult. I mean, this this should be just a routine process where if the Home Office are mandating employers to check whether somebody is allowed to work, mm-hmm. this should just be a fairly simple process. But it sounds like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's very complicated. Well, it should be a simple process. You know, it's like, you know, asking me to to study... I don't know physics or anything, you know. I have a no idea, you know, what kind of a, um, you know, how to go about this. So it's mm-hmm. gonna be become really, 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 really difficult. So if you don't have any idea of the topic, it's gonna be really challenging. So yeah. that's the same situation with employers. Employers are being asked to do the job and they're not qualified to do the job. No, that's the problem. That's why we found ourselves in, in difficulties like this. Mm. You know? Why do you think the government have decided to bring in such a law? Given that the people who they are asking to enforce yeah. that law have got yeah. no idea well, how, to, how, to, how to implement it. Well, I think yeah, that's the, it's part of the hostile environment. You know, it's part of the hostile environment. So, for example, one other thing the government has decided to do in 2017 is that if you are... Uh, a refugee in this country mm-hmm. refugee usually you know refugee means you know you have international protection yeah but when the time comes for you after five years mm-hmm. if you want to renew your leave to remain uh you know to to get you indefinitely to remain what the uk government then do is that they, they do a safe country review so basically what they do, they look at your country where you're coming from is a situation has changed right. that potentially they can revoke your your leave to remain in the country because for them, that's safe. You're safe to return home. So be having a refugee status, which is supposed to be a, a, an international protection, hmm. doesn't really protect you because at any time, the government can decide to review your your refugee status and then send you home if they believe that you are safe enough you know does but but britain is a is a signatory to the the refugee convention well well that's true but uh, that's the refugee convention that allows state to do that there is an article is i believe oh, so yeah. the, the refugee convention has got a loophole which well, actually enables governments to review people who they've decided to protect yeah. after five years yeah the, the well there's no specific time but what the refugee conventions uh, state i believe it's the article 1c of the refugee convention that allow state to mm-hmm. review mm-hmm. your your refugee status right. so the uk government is just enforcing the law but this kind of this type of the law, they are happy to enforce, you know. So mm. they're just doing it. So you see that the Refugee Convention 
you really wonder who they want to protect if there is this kind of a provision of the law that allows the, the government, the state, to review your refugee status. Yeah, because my impression of people who are granted refugee status is that once you're granted refugee status, yeah. it's it's for life up until <laughs> you you get citizenship, that, that you are now on a path to becoming a British citizen. Well, you're on a path, but that path, it does not mean that that path is protected or guaranteed. It's like when you have an indefinite leave to remain, this indefinite leave to remain, you can lose it as well. If you have a citizenship, you can lose it as well. So nothing is really permanent. So if you don't know all the rules... It, this just sounds... <laughs> it just sounds... It's got so much uncertainty. Exactly. Because, I mean, this, this can be debilitating for somebody who has that refugee status. Because I, I assume here that if you're fleeing conflict yeah. in your country... Yeah. And your country becomes stable for one year. Yeah. And this stability is sort of transient. Yeah. You're you're living on edge. Well, the uh, it's a lot of it. It's more. It's not just that. It's not just because you know. Let's say, for example, for one year the civil war ended, and then one year everything is quiet. So you can you know the government will say, well, it's quiet now. You can return home. You have a lot of criteria. You right. know, the government cannot just wake up every morning and say, well, civil war is ending, pack your bag and go. You know, so, but the provision is there. It's a little difficult, but the provision is there. And the government can use that as well. You know, so. Right. Okay. So in your work at, at Migrants at Work, mm. talk to us um, about a typical day. What sort of issues are, are people who migrate to the UK confronted with, with you, which you then come and help them with? Um, many issues we're dealing with are, uh, because we only deal with, or the main issue we deal with is immigration law and employment law. So right. what we do is we have a lot of people coming to us, you know, being uh, refused employment or suspended without pay or dismissed because of the immigration status. And we deal with individuals who have the legal right to remain in a country mm -hmm. or are being sacked or refused employment simply because employment do not understand the law. So when things like this happen, then they reach out to us and then we explain, we provide support. So mm -hmm. the kind of support we're providing is that we provide representation, you know, at work. Mm -hmm. You know, we can represent when they have, uh, when they raise a grievance, for example, or they have disciplinary or, um, you know, they need to, be reinstating work in the workplace, for example. So some of the work we have done in the past, we have managed to reinstate people who have been who have been sacked or suspended because of mm -hmm. their right to work. Mm -hmm. um, and then sometimes it can go to you know the next stage where um, we negotiate with employer, uh, you know, to reinstate them. And if it does not work, mm -hmm. then we can uh, you know um, take legal action on the behalf or raise. The, uh, the issue with the code so that it can be dealt with. So for example, now, mm -hmm. that last month, no, two weeks ago, I raised a claim on the behalf of an EU citizen who's okay. been refused employment by one of the biggest UK uh, recruitment agency, mm -hmm. simply because they believe that his national uh, ID, EU national ID card was not good enough to provide, uh, to evidence his right to work in a country. So these are the kind of thing we do really, yeah. That's, so, that's really curious. I mean, I, 
Well, <laughs> isn't isn't this that that's all that you you need in order for you to be able to to work? Is it not? Well, yeah, especially when you are a EU citizen, and we are still part of a. You know, we're still going through the transition period until the end of, uh, of June yeah. next year. But until up until now, employers still require many employers require EU citizen to to hold a biometric resident permit. And a biometric resident permit does not exist for EU citizen because the EU citizen is not subject to immigration rule. EU citizen, as of now, can just travel back and forth without any restriction. Right. But an employer, because they don't understand the law, they want to see your biometric resident permit for EU citizen. Or for a non-EU citizen, when you have your biometric resident permit, for example, expired, mm-hmm. and you have a renew, so you have submitted an in-time application, Okay. Many employers believe that you don't have the right to work because your document is expired. But the fact that your document is expired does not mean that your leave to remain in the country is expired. Because employers are so clueless, they're going to say you don't have the right to work. So we're going to suspend you. So hmm. suspending you does not make sense because if they believe that you don't have the right to work and they have suspended you, you're still in their book. So therefore, if you did not have the right to work, they will still be liable. So do you yeah. see how employer work? It doesn't make any sense at all. But that's the reality. Right. So people are, are finding that their contracts are being suspended or mm-hmm. in some instances terminated because an employer can't prove that they have a right to work. But it's all part of the system that's that doesn't work efficiently. And people's yeah. rights are being yeah. taken away as a result of that. Well, yeah, exactly. The problem is that migrant has the right document to prove that they have the right to work. It's simply employers do not understand. So as a result of that, we have cases where, and because employers don't understand, so they fund the home office. And you have to remember that employer get 50% discount for calling the home office. Right, <laughs> and that is real. Right. An employer call can call the home office, and they can get fifty percent discount because when if, if the home office found out that somebody is working illegally, mm-hmm. then employer can be fined twenty thousand pound. Right. So if the employer, you know, to go one step ahead and contact the home office, and then the home office turn up in that workplace, boom, they get fifty percent discount. Right. You know, so there are situations where the home office have wrongly, as the employer has wrongly called the home office and uh, people, migrants, found themselves in detention. So which is a breach of human right because you've been unlawfully detained because you have the legal right to work. So there is no reason for the home office to detain you. So in this particular case, the individual was released because the home office has done the check and everything. They found out that the employer was wrong. That person had the legal right to work. Uh, there are some other instances where the individual are being exploited by employer mm-hmm. or some cases where it leads to race discrimination. Mm-hmm. So you can see how a simple document can create an exacerbated vulnerability to labor exploitation, to uh, unlawful imprisonment, and to uh, you know, uh, race discrimination. Mm-hmm. So this is part of the whole hostile environment design. And a lot of people... Are going through but they don't really know how to deal with that so that's the reason why i set up migrant at work because i went through this and mm-hmm. because i i, I read a lot uh, on uh, about international law and national law and i have my master's degree as well mm-hmm. in international human rights law so okay that's what i do 
It sounds it sounds very much like what you're doing is is quite similar to what a trade union does. Well, that's what trade unions are supposed to do. <laughs> that's what they're supposed to do. But then yeah. if you're a person who's a minority, mm-hmm. generally you've understood from your own experience that that support isn't there and that's that's the need to create migrants at work well exactly because i worked for them for five years and i realized that migrant workers were coming to me with a similar issue and i was in a position to provide support to them Mm. but it was against the union policy to provide any support to a migrant and when i say it was against the policy because union did not deal with immigration law at work so when you have when you're a migrant who come to them, what they then do is they advise you to contact an immigration lawyer. But right. immigration lawyer costs a lot of money. And right. if you've been suspended and you don't have money, how are you going to contact an immigration lawyer? And when you're suspended, because you cannot pay your subscription because you're suspended, of course, you don't have money. So mm-hmm. union won't help you because the first thing they would do when you contact them, they would check in the membership list, list and say, well, oh, you haven't paid your subscription, so we can't help you. But you need to help me to get back to work before I can pay you, but they don't care. Money first, you need to show the money first. So there is a gap here where unions are supposed to do the work I do, but they are not doing it, simply because they don't care. It's, it all sounds really, really, really awful. I, I'm trying to understand here how a government can essentially create what it looks to me like are, is a system of border guards, mm-hmm. but border guards who aren't trained, who well, can end up interfering with people's right to work in sort of an arbitrary fashion. Well, it's not, not only they are not trained, not only those individuals who are not supposed to, employers who are not supposed to enforce immigration law or enforce immigration law, but you also have immigration officers, the home office, um, uh, employees mm-hmm. who don't have a clue as well about what they're doing because we have cases where uh, an individual has the legal right to work. Mm-hmm. The home office has written to the employer saying that that person has a legal right to work but she can't work because she does not have any document to prove it. The so that, home office writes that. Yeah, the home office write that. And that person was a, a British overseas citizen Right. So a British overseas citizen, they are still subject to immigration rules, so they need a leave to remain in this, this country. So right. that particular person has an indefinite leave to remain. But her indefinite leave to remain was in a passport that was expired. Right. So she obtained her new passport, mm-hmm. and she was already working for the company. So because the, new, the indefinite leave to remain was not transferred to the new passport, the employer said she couldn't work. And the home office said she couldn't work. Because mm-hmm. she needs to apply for a biometric resident permit. Mm-hmm. There, is, there is nothing that forced that person to apply for a biometric resident permit to be able to work. So mm-hmm. you can see how employers don't understand the law, but home office staff misguide employers as well and who suffer as a result of that migrant. So it does not mm-hmm. really matter whether you have indefinitely to remain in the country or whether you're a British citizen because employer still carry out the right to work check on British citizen. If mm-hmm. your skin color is the same as mine, mm-hmm. employers will carry out the right to work check on you. And when they do that, 
For a British citizen, the right to work check always come back negative because the Home Office does not have your detail in the system because you are a British citizen and they're not supposed to do the check on you online. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to square this with, there's a lot of legislation in the UK and I said, well, the, the Human Rights Act, um, there's equality laws. There's a lot of equality laws. Yeah, what I'm trying to reconcile. I'm trying to reconcile. How is it that you can have these laws, yeah, which don't seem to comply with with just general rules of equality law? It looks like the law, there's some laws that enable discrimination, even well, though equality laws exist. Well, employment law and equality law do not protect migrants in this country. They don't protect us at all. When you are being refused the right to work because of your immigration status, hmm. immigration status is not a protected characteristic. Therefore, it does not come under the Equality Act 2010. So even though it comes under the international law as over status, hmm. it does not come under Equality Act 2010. Therefore, if employer refuse to employ you on the basis of your immigration status, hmm. on many cases, your claim fell in court because your immigration status is not a protected characteristic. So there is a gap again in the law. And post-Brexit, a lot of people are going to be affected by that because the employer argument is that, well, I did not discriminate against you because of your immigration, because of your um, race, mm -hmm. but I didn't employ you because of your immigration status. So what are you going to do? So this is, um, we've got a, a really, really, Good example of this. Mm -hmm. So the the victims of the Windrush mm -hmm. scandal. Mm -hmm. This is effectively what what happened to them because they couldn't prove yeah. through some form of documentation that yeah. they had the right first to be here, mm -hmm. that they were British citizens essentially, mm -hmm. yeah, um, and that they had the right to work. So yeah. a whole load of people are now being compensated as a result of, of laws that are being applied by public servants yeah. who don't know how the law works. Well, if you look at the case of the Rin Rush, you know, you can't really, we can't really say that, you know, this was not, uh, you know, we wouldn't be where we are today because if you look at the right to wear a check, this mm -hmm. did not start for years ago uh, since Brexit mm -hmm. because Non-EES citizens are being discriminated against because of the right to work check since 1997. Because the immigration law at the time came in force in 1997. So it was the Immigration Act 1996. Mm. So this has been going on since 1997. So that was a real hostile environment. But it was not called a hostile environment because nobody was talking about that. So now... We, we're talking about a lot about EU citizen, about EU settlement status, but mm. nobody talking about a right to work. And mm. we, black people and non-EU citizen, of an EU citizen as I am myself, I mm. went through this in 2009. So we, basically you have non-EES citizen who have been going through this since 1997. Black EU citizen have been going through this since 2000, uh, 2006, 2009. And white EU citizen we'll go through this post-Brexit. So what the, um, this new settlement scheme mm. that the government is currently rolling out, yeah. 
it doesn't have built into it protections which will mean that people don't have to experience those kind of things. Well, it's built in a way that people are going to be shafted into labor exploitation. You know, it's like the government push you off the cliff because as of now, as the, as, as the case I said earlier, mm-hmm. an EU citizen who has a national ID card mm-hmm. and has his settlement status, mm-hmm. you know, given to the employer, the employer still refused to employ that person because the employer wants to see a biometric resident permit. Now, remember that post-Brexit, mm-hmm. EU citizens going to have just a code to share with employer. You know, so if you tell your employer that, you know, I have the right to work, but I don't have any document to prove it, mm-hmm. but I can share my code with you, employer's not going to take it because they know that if they get it wrong, they're going to be fined 20,000 pounds by the home office. But why, why would the government roll out such a program if they're aware that employers re- require this biometric residence permit in order to, in, to allow you to work? Why on earth would the government put themselves in a position like that and put so many yeah. people? There's like, there's like at least 3 million EU citizens here. Well, you have yeah, more over 3 million EU citizens, but you have 2.3 million EU citizens in employment. Hmm. So what it means is that, so already I think altogether in this country, you have people born from outside, people born overseas, you have, I think it's 4.8 million people born outside the UK. Mm-hmm. So those people who are born outside the UK have been going through this kind of an issue when they don't have a British citizenship. And even they, when they have it, they're black, they're going through that. So those 2.3 million EU citizens who are in employment will be going through the same thing. And why the government is doing that? Well, that's why it's called the hostile environment. <laughs> that's what it is. You know, so clearly, you know, as we, as always say, the government is responsible for labor exploitation. Mm. And that's, that's, that's exactly what, what's going to happen post-Brexit because as of now, we know we have a report uh, from EU citizens working on farm that the recruitment agencies have been preventing them from applying for EU citizenship, uh, sorry, for uh, the settlement scheme. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is going to happen after the, uh, the deadline? There will, a lot of them will be unlawful in the country and will be stuck. Mm-hmm. And would the government be surprised that the number of victims of labor exploitation will rise? No, they shouldn't be. It's just going to be a new wind rush. So as far as you're concerned, Aki, the government are fully aware that the conditions that they create conditions for labor exploitation. And at the same time, mm. um, the, the same conservative government says that it's, it's against modern slavery. But well, <laughs> it, it, it seems to me that this, this, these gaps that they create for labor yeah. exploitation yeah. feed modern, modern slavery. But exactly, that's what it is. And yeah, when you look at the Modern Slavery Act, for me, I call it a foggy law because it's like a, you know, you call it thug law. No, not thug, a foggy, like foggy, okay, yeah, like foggy, a foggy law. law, right? Okay, for me, it's a foggy law. You know, right. when you get into you know, you drive your car, you know, fog around you, you don't see anything, and when you are finally out, you crash into the wall, 
That's what the modeling slavery act 2015 is. It's a foggy law. You know, it's just there to try to pretend that it protect migrant or people from labor exploitation, but it doesn't. It just create the impression that it is there to protect a, a, a victim, but it doesn't. And people, like I said, a lot of people are going to find themselves victim of modern slavery post-Brexit. And, you know, I will send this recording to the government for them to listen because that's a warning. Because mm. they can't say, well, you know, they did not predict that blah, blah, blah. When you don't give people a document to prove their identification in a country, how do you expect them to convince them prior? You know? Mm. So it creates post-Brexit. There'll be um, something akin to Windrush 2. Yeah. The only the only difference that is that this time it will be white people. You know? But hopefully... And, and currently, whilst you're... What, what sort of conversations are you having, say, with your local authority, your members of parliament. Member of a what? Your member of parliament to Mem- make these mem- representations. Member of a what? So, so that they they try and find a remedy before this, this chaos ensues. Well, we are a small organization and we don't have this opportunity to sit, you know, at a table with the big boys and big girls. So... Mm. Those who sit at this table are big organizations who claim they know everything that has been happening to the migrant community uh, and are there to represent the migrant community and the migrant issue. The only problem, the only issue I would say is that they don't have a clue about what migrants are going through because we are not part of the process. And as always say, anyone who does something for migrants without migrants is not for migrants. It's just for them to feel, you know, good about himself it's like a sleeping pill you take it you're happy you sleep nicely you have done your job so for many of these organizations protecting migrant worker is a nine-to-five job but for us migrant it's not a nine-to-five job it's a 24 hours job because we live this situation we have live experience so we don't have this opportunity to reach out to those who are making those decisions unfortunately that's the reality so what's 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 the remedy aki well, the issue with the right to work, it's not complicated. Tackling labor exploitation does not have to be complicated. There is no conflict between the law, because between a migration law and employment law. The only problem is that employers do not understand the law. If you look at a research conducted by uh, um, Coventry University, mm-hmm. 96% of employers saying that they lack uh, they, they don't want to employ non-EU citizen because they don't know how to identify those documents. Mm. And 52% of them are saying that they want more information. But nobody in this government is listening to this employer. And this research was conducted uh, in 2019. But nobody's listening. So if, you, if they were listening, then they would realize that businesses, mm. even though businesses are the perpetrators of these uh, race discrimination uh, abuses, mm-hmm. but they are all sort of victims. So I think for us in this fight, it's not migrant against employers. Sometimes mm-hmm. it happens because you have to take them to court. Mm-hmm. But I think for us to be able to tackle this issue, it should be uh, employers and migrant working together because for employers, it's just a business. 
For us, it's about our life and our health. So we really need to come together to be able to fight that. So the solution, it's not about the law. It's simply to provide training to employers. So that's why on the 18th of this month, for the, for the International Migrants Day, mm-hmm. we're going to be organizing this session. Uh, we are launching our campaign of responsibility to prevent labor exploitation and race discrimination uh, resulting from immigration study discrimination. So mm-hmm. what we want, the UK government has a legal obligation under the international law, the ILO Convention, to provide training, to train employer, migrant, to protect them and to reform the law. So what we just want is the government to train employer and migrant. Because mm-hmm. if you train people, you empower people to understand and to identify the sign of labor exploitation, therefore they can protect themselves. But okay. when the government does not do that and people are exploited, they have to spend more money yeah. to try to rescue people and they're doing really badly anyway. So it's better to try to prevent the issue, you know, from happening rather than wait until it happens, you know. Right, okay. I'm, in your answer there, I didn't hear you say anything about, you've talked about law reform. Yeah. But there's there's laws that resulted in the Windrush, mm-hmm. which are still legislation now. Mm-hmm. Those laws haven't re- been repealed. Mm-hmm. So... The same thing will happen again because those kind of laws are still being enforced. Aren't you? Don't you need to call for a repeal of those laws rather than just reform? Well, you can call for a repeal, but it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of... Uh, uh, because you have to remember, migration is a contentious issue. Mm. I, migration, the problem with migration is that some politician going to use it to advance the career. Yeah. And some of her who have a little interest on this will think carefully before tackling issue related to uh, uh, migration. Mm. So all these kind of re- re- uh, reform or, um, you know, repealing the law, these, we can call for this. But what we just want, it's training. It's simple. It's training, and this is why you're starting this campaign that, exactly. that, that you're doing from the 18th. Exactly. So we there are two things we call, we, we want to call for. So the first one mm-hmm. is to to repeal the exemption because there is an, ex, an exemption in the law uh, for employer. Employ, immigration law, you have to be regulated yeah. to, to do immigration work, but mm-hmm. employers are exempt. Right. So either they can repeal the law, but that would be that it would take time. It would be difficult. Mm. The second thing is because employer can be fined twenty thousand pound when they get they get caught by the home office. But when they discriminate against those, nothing happened. So the home office can impose the same fine twenty twenty. Mm. You know that would be fair, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that it's going to be difficult to do because the government will say, well, it would be a political issue because they don't want to put any burden on employers. That would be difficult. So the easiest thing is just training. Mm. It's easy. It's training. So that's what we organize. We launched this campaign, the responsibility to prevent, just to call on the government to provide training to migrant and employer. It's simple. They don't need to change the law. What they just need is to put money on the table. Mm. You know? It's, it seems like migration law, immigration is very contentious in the UK. And some of the laws don't help that at all. 
No, no, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. And when you have migration law mixing with labor law, mixing with discrimination law, mixing with, with human, uh, human right law, then it's just chaos. It's and just you chaos. have to bear in mind that those who are supposed to enforce immigration law at work are employers. And many of the employers don't understand the basic employment law. So you yeah. put immigration law on the back, you put a discrimination law on top of that, you put human right law on top of that, and you bury them. Mm. You know, and so how, how, given our theme for for International Human Rights Day, mm-hmm. recovering better mm-hmm. and standing up for for human rights, this is in light of of COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the people who've been adversely affected, and we know this in the UK, are are migrants mm-hmm. who who are key workers, mm-hmm. and can't leave their jobs mm-hmm. some have had to go to work and just be confronted with with the virus how how do we mm. recover better for people who migrate to new countries um what kind of protections can be built into the system because the uk has got this no recourse to public funds yeah for people who are here on a work visa mm-hmm. um so they can't get benefits yeah and things like that so what what sort of recommendations would you have for how how the UK government can recover better and be far more inclusive of people who come here to do essential work. Well, with our migrant in this country, this country would have I don't know what they have that would have done because while the government was saying you know everybody's locked down, everybody has to stay in the house. What they were doing, they were flying uh, Romanian, they were flying. Uh, um, uh, people, migrant from um, East European countries as a VIP, you know, booking a plane for them to come to Europe. But once they get to Europe, where do they once, sleep? Once they arrive in the UK. Yeah, well, yeah once they arrive in the UK, mm-hmm. then what happened to them? You, how many times we have read that some of, uh, you know, migrant or asylum seeker have died, you know, um, in a hotel or things like that simply because they did not have a uh, recourse to to public fund so this kind of thing happen so when you have people in a country and the government claim that you know they want they want more ground because we contribute to the society and blah 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 but we are being still being treated as slave how do you how, how does it work you know well, you are part of the society you contribute to the society but still you're a slave contributing to the society how can you integrate somebody while treating that person like a slave, you can never integrate in society where you've been treated like a slave or you feel like you've been treated like a slave. Mm. It doesn't work, you know? Yeah, it all sounds very, very, very jarring. <laughs> well, it doesn't have to be. You know, so that's the thing. Because we were, since COVID-19, we have been upgraded from low-skill worker to key workers, but mm. we are still being treated as low-skill, low-pay worker and like slave. So we have the upgrade, mm. but we the lifestyle is still the same. So it's, it's really time to have a real conversation about how migrants are being treated in this country. You know? do, you, do you think, Aki, that the UK post-Brexit is ready to have to confront and to speak truth to power about about the whole immigration issue and how migrants are treated. Do you think that there's 
there's hope that this could change? Well, no, I don't think it's going to change. If there was hope, if the government thought that um, migrants were, you know, well, if they were welcoming migrants in this country, mm. they would have done a lot of uh, changes before Brexit. Even though, as I said earlier, we've been upgraded to key key workers, the immigration law, the new immigration law, is still coming to force, where migrants still going to be prevented from getting to into the country simply because of where where they are from. Some mm. migrants still, some of the migrants who have worked here during that period of COVID nineteen, many of them wouldn't even be able to get through uh, to the UK through the new immigration system. So we cannot be called key workers, but at the same time being treated like we are slaves. It doesn't work. Yeah, so, so you've, I think you've it, highlighted a, a lot of discrimination mm. that exists, that is inbuilt into the system. The adverse effects that this has on, on anybody who migrates here, mm-hmm. that their rights are not protected. Um, what's, what's the solution? What 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 does the future hold for somebody who decides to migrate to the UK? Uh, I think that's where the problem is. Coming to the UK for many of us, coming to the UK is not a a decision. We don't just wake up in the morning and decide to migrate to UK. Mm. For us, it's not really a choice. For many of us who are here, when you're asylum seeker, it's mm. not a choice. No. You just you have to find a safe place. Yeah. And when the government is saying, well, the safe place is in France, how do they know France is a safe place? It's not because there is no war in France that it is a safe place. Because mm-hmm. for somebody sitting in his couch, you know, from watching the TV, mm-hmm. you know, for, for them, France is safe. For them, Russia might be safe or whatever, whichever country might be safe. But for that person coming from overseas, that person, for example, might be from you know, uh, a French-speaking country mm-hmm. uh, or English-speaking country, and mm-hmm. for that person, going to France may not be safe because he does not speak the language. So coming mm-hmm. to the UK is a safer country because they are able to understand the people who speak the language. So when somebody sits in his cow say, well, France is a safe country, and you don't speak a word of, of the language, or you don't have anybody in France, so it's not a safe country for you. Yeah. So... There are a lot of a lot of things needs to change, but the way the immigration system goes, I really doubt that things gonna change. Things just gonna get worse. To be honest. So you think post Brexit that things will just deteriorate? As far as employment and the right to work check is concerned, mm-hmm. things just gonna get worse and worse because now, as I said earlier, you have. You know, 2.3 million of EU citizens in, in EU citizens in employment. Mm-hmm. Who's gonna go through what non-EU citizens have been going through for the past 23 years? So for them, it's gonna be worse as well. But for us, we have the experience, <laughs> I mm. would say, which is bad experience to have. Mm-hmm. But we are able to. I'm not gonna say we're able to, you know, to 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 live with that. But we know what it is. But for this EU citizen, they don't know what it is to experience this kind of a, you know, uh, situation. So I think post-Brexit, it should really be a challenge against the immigration system. Everyone should work together. It shouldn't be 
migrant, no migrant, British, you know, non-British. It shouldn't be big organization, you know, and small organization. Everybody should work together. But I think it's really, really important to have people have lived experience of the immigration system yeah. to be leading the fight. And those big, uh, so-called big organizations who are protecting migrant, maybe to take a step back and put the, the individual with lived experience out of front because we are know we know what we are talking about. Yeah. They are talking about what we are reporting to them. Yeah. I can speak for myself. You can speak for yourself. I yeah. don't need somebody else to speak to me. Yeah. I can even though my English is not perfect, yeah. but I still can speak yeah. for myself. So we have a lot of changes to make. Mm-hmm. Organization fighting for migrant have a lot of changes to make if mm-hmm. we really want to fight this immigration issue post-Brexit. Even though for us, Brexit does not change anything because even though some British people still believe that Africa is a country, Mm. part of the EU. (laughs) So you you generally, finally, you think that most of this stuff is really about education, about that people are, they're not sufficiently enlightened Mm -hmm. about perhaps... British colonialism and the fact that Britain was the mother country mm-hmm. and that people come here yeah. because they came to where we were. Yeah. They they don't they don't necessarily have they're not sufficiently enlightened and part of your role at Migrants at Work is is to bring that kind of enlightenment. Uh, well, part of my role as migrant at work is mainly immigration at work mm. which is for me the solution as i said earlier we have three solutions mm. but one we believe will not cause a lot of problem mm-hmm. because there is no low change needed with the education as far as other things are concerned about you know educating uh, british about whatever happened, you know, about the involvement in Africa or wherever, whatever they have done in the past, mm. is going to need a lot of uh, discussion on this and overthink than education okay. to change. But I think it's really important that those who do not want us in this country understand mm. that when they elect an MP, mm-hmm. those MPs are making decisions and mm-hmm. the those decisions affect us back home. And that's the reason why we're here. Right. So if they don't want us here, that's simple. Take responsibility. Next time you vote for your MP, look at his track record, whoever mm-hmm. has voted for international uh, budget or things like that. And mm-hmm. the international budget, the international development aid is mm-hmm. something I'm against mm-hmm. because it's not helping Africa. It's just so, a handout. It's not a hand up. No, it's not. Because of what it does is just to keep our corrupt leaders over there in power. Mm. That's what that's what simply does. So all the British people don't want us here. They just need to think twice when they elect the MP. If you mm. don't want us here, fine. Mm. But you know, take responsibility for your act. Don't vote for an MP who is going to increase the international development budget because it is going to help African people over there because that's what they always do those MP they go to Africa they sleep in a nice hotel and then just go they just go for a run around and then they come back oh we saw a lot of a bad thing going on in Africa we need to push for more money for Africa who is it helping it's not helping us it's just again the mm. whole 
you know, sleeping pill syndrome. It's not yeah. helping anyone. Mm. Yeah. No, it's been a really fascinating conversation <laughs> with you, Aki. Um, some of the work that you're doing is is really incredible and it's mm. it's fundamental work that that needs to be done so thank you so much thank you very much for Lance. for joining us here on on the still we rise podcast and thank you to you for for listening to this podcast we encourage you to go to to our website which is www.carag.co.uk and go and have a look at some of the work that our grassroots organization does in the community and follow us on on social media on twitter on facebook and on instagram our handle is at carag coventry until the next episode of still we rise thanks for joining us and happy international human rights day thank you <laughs>